Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This week's teaching is called, They All Saw a Jesus, and is part one in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on September 17, 2023. Thanks for listening. Good morning. So uh, one of Crossing's longstanding traditions is in the fall engaging in this long study of a biblical book. And if you're here last year, we studied the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, the year before that, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah. But every four years, uh, we try to teach through one of the four gospels, uh, these stories about Jesus in the New Testament. And this year, we are going to study the third gospel, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, We actually studied Luke 12 years ago. I was on staff at Crossings back then, so I remember planning all of these things. Um, And when we were doing that, we did 34 weeks of Luke. And I don't remember people getting tired of Luke. Uh, I actually remember really enjoying the study. But 34 weeks of Luke is a long time. And so 12 years seems like an appropriate break. Um, Though I'm not sure how many of you actually were even here when we did that. Um, It's it's really interesting, though, to teach through a book that's already been taught in a community of people from beginning to end. Uh, On one level, there's this temptation. I'm not going to lie. There's the temptation to try to go back and just kind of come through the stuff that you've already done and and repeat what was said before. But on another level, there's this question of what goes into the act of rereading. I don't know if you have those books on your shelf, maybe not even the Bible, those novels that you go back and you you revisit from time to time. There's something that goes into the act of rereading that is different. One of the reasons that I'm genuinely excited about doing this series in the book of Luke is that we have never studied the Gospel of Luke before. The Gospel of Luke, I'm pretty sure, hasn't changed over 12 years. Raphael, New Testament scholar, has the Gospel changed in 12 years? The text? As far as we know. Okay. Thanks. You just ruined the teaching. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But we have changed. We're not the same community we were 12 years ago. And so even though Crossings has studied Luke before, this will be a completely new experience. Before we even begin talking about or reading Luke's gospel, we first have to discuss how it is we read stories at Crossings. Uh, The fancy word for that is hermeneutic. It really just means how you read. You can read things skeptically, or you can take the author's word for everything. You can read things critically and at a distance and analyze them, or you can use a variety of lenses to read different things and get different results. The thing about a hermeneutic, though, is that it's like breathing. We all do it, we just hardly ever think about it. Or hermeneutics are like lenses, they're like eyeglasses through which we read and observe the text or the world. And the hermeneutic that we use at crossings is something we're very intentional about talking about. Um, The hermeneutic that we use at crossings when we teach from the Bible has four parts to it. And it goes something like this. 
Part one is that we believe that the Bible, the story of God, is one story from beginning to end of God putting God's family back together. It is this one story. It is even though the Bible is a library, truly, of different books that span hundreds of years between their creation, there is a meta-narrative. There's an intentionality to the way that it was all put together. There's a tilt to the whole thing. Starting with the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the creation of the world, the story of Israel in the Hebrew Scriptures, all the way up to Jesus and the beginning of this thing called the church, all the books in our Bible are connected, even where they may seem to differ or have different perspectives. And we cannot understand the story of Jesus, the story that Luke is going to tell us, without understanding that one story, without understanding the history of Israel and the practices of ancient Judaism. Jesus was a part of Israel. He was Jewish. Jesus had a particular vision, an idea of what Israel was and what Israel should be. And so we will continuously be talking through stories and prophecies and poems from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as we study Luke in order to understand the Jesus that we find in the gospel. And we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. But the second part of our hermeneutic is God's story. Because if the Bible is primarily a story, which we think that it is, then the story is first and foremost the story of and about God. We read the story looking for God. And sometimes the author tells us exactly where they think God is in the story. Other times we have to look closer. We have to actually ask questions of the story in order to try to understand where God might be hiding. Particularly because Luke is one of four Gospels, meaning that there are three others, we need to ask, where is God in this particular telling of the Jesus story? What is being revealed about God through Luke's account, through Luke's perspective about who Jesus is, and why is it unique? Why do we need to listen to this one instead of maybe another one? The third part of our hermeneutic is that if the Bible is one story, and if it's primarily God's story, it is also our story. Um, what I did not say there is that the Bible was written specifically for us as the primary audience or readers. Uh, what we mean when we say it's our story is that we're supposed to do the hard work of making it our story. We want to let these stories teach us and correct us and encourage us. We want to ask how the stories might send us out to do good work even if they were written for a group of people that lived 2,000 years ago. Ultimately, what we want to do when we read the story as our story is pay attention to how we receive what's being talked about in the story of Jesus. How does a story about Jesus make us feel? Where does it put us? What kind of emotions does it bring up in us? And what might God be doing in those things? Where do we see ourselves in a particular story about Jesus? Where would we be in the story if we were there 
what would we be doing? What would we be thinking? These are the kinds of things we want to do in order to feel what it is to live into these stories. We must learn to read the Bible as our story, to find ourselves in the story, and make the story our own. James Muhlenberg says, unless you can read the story of Adam and Eve, of Abraham and Sarah, of David and Bathsheba, or we could add Jesus and his first followers, as your own story, you have not really understood it. You can read the Bible, you can analyze the Bible, you can do all kinds of things with the Bible, but until you begin to ask questions about how this fits into my life, there's a lack of understanding there. If we use these stories of Jesus to make a list of rules or to endorse our pet theories about the world or to construct a bunch of doctrines without engaging in the story personally, without allowing ourselves to be shocked or surprised or transformed in the act of reading these stories, then we are not giving the story a full hearing. Ultimately, what we're trying to do as best we can is what we do in this fourth part of our hermeneutic, which is to put a new frame on the story of God, the story of Jesus according to Luke. Uh, we could use the story of Jesus to come up with a list of theological points. There have been people who have done that. Uh, we, could, we could create a roadmap, an outline of salvation, what you need to do in order to be saved and go to heaven when you die. We could try to decide who's in and who's out by reading these stories. But that's kind of been done before. If you look at the graphic uh, that we created, by the way, thanks Canva, um, this is a, an interesting image. This is the frame that we want to put on this entire series as we read the book of Luke. You'll notice that there is an upside-down building. Maybe it's a castle. Maybe it's a cathedral. We think that the story of Luke, the story of Jesus... The story of God's reality coming into our reality is a story about how things that seem right side up are really upside down, and how some things that are upside down really might be the way it was intended to be. I was really tempted to try to make stranger things fit here, <laughs> but then that would make Jesus the mind flayer. <laughs> So that didn't seem right. <laughs> uh, but the frame of the upside-down kingdom uh, is, is that we want to use Luke. We want to put this frame around Luke because we really want to let ourselves be surprised by what we find in Luke's account of Jesus. We want ourselves to be upended, to be flipped upside-down. To some extent, even using the word kingdom, like kingdom of God, is outdated, but it's part of the surprise because we don't live in that world. We don't live in a world with a king. Kingdom is not a part of our regular language. And that's the point of continuing to use this phrase, kingdom of God, because what if we discover in reading this book of Luke an alternative way of living that we are not used to? an alternative way of seeing the world, of speaking about the world. Some of us may truly be reading 
the story of Jesus in Luke for the first time from beginning to end. For others, maybe we've read this story. Maybe you were here 12 years ago when we did this. Maybe you've read this story on your own so many times that, that you think there are no more surprises. We want to put a frame around Luke. We want to read Luke's gospel not looking for the Jesus that we think we already know or looking for some confirmation of our own theological perspective. We want to be upended by what we find. What if the Jesus we thought we know is not the one that Luke gives us? What if Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God, the alternative reality of God, is not a rubber stamp for all of our political policies, our worldview, our personal habits, the way we do things as a community? What if we find out that we are somehow being upended by Jesus? The hope is that we don't see Jesus or the kingdom of God as a reversal or subversion of other people's lives either, because that's the temptation. We want the surprising fact of the kingdom of God to be that we still have things that we need to change, that there are still things in us that need to be transformed as we become the people we were intended to be. And that's why we say when we do these long studies that our goal on Sunday morning is to have the first word, but not the last word. We want to leave with questions. We want to leave needing to have more conversations. We don't want teachings that pretend to have all the answers and shutting the conversation down. We don't want to say, now believe this because this is all you need to know and this is what you need in order to fit in here. So that's how we're going to read Luke, just so we're all on the same page. We're going to read it as one story, part of Israel's story. We're going to read it as God's story, looking for God. We're going to try to read it as our story. We're going to try to have this approach each week, this frame of trying to see what Jesus may be doing in the world that surprises, upends, or shocks us through the frame of the upside-down reality of God. So, let's actually read the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, as one having a grasp of everything from the start, to write a well-ordered account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. I don't know how many of you are editors out here in the crowd, Jen, but in case you didn't catch it, that's all one sentence, four verses, okay? Luke is, as the kids like to say, flexing on us with his literary abilities, thanks, as a Greek historian. And, and this kind of history is very different from the kind of history that we like as Western American folks. Uh, Luke is writing what we call a persuasive history. 
He wants us to have a very particular view of who Jesus is, and he's trying to convince us to adopt his perspective of Jesus. He admits in this first four verse little section here that he is not the first person to write down or talk about Jesus. At the very least, uh, we know that there is at least one other New Testament gospel, the book of Mark, that's out there when Luke is writing his gospel. And there are plenty of other traditions that we believe are floating around about who Jesus was and what he did. Luke is telling a story. He's telling a story from the eyewitnesses that he's collected. He's telling a story from his perspective about what needs to be done based on what's out there. Uh, Eugene Peterson, the author of the message, translates uh, this frame uh, this way. He says, starting from the story's beginning, this is Luke speaking again, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Honestly, Luke, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, begins his story with a bit of hermeneutics that are very close to our own. He says he's writing to a figure named Theophilus, which literally translates to lover of God. This could be a real patron, someone who's paying Luke to write down this account. This could be like a dedication page. This is someone who's honorable in a Christian community and Luke wants to dedicate his work to them. Or it could be that Theophilus just means anyone interested in or devoted to God, a lover of God. But also, this book is to someone or a group of people who have already heard the story. He says, so you can know the reliability of what you were taught. This is not a story introducing someone to Jesus. Luke assumes his, his readers already know Jesus. Again, Luke wants to put a frame, a new frame, on a familiar story. And to do this, Luke does not discount the other versions that are out there. He's not saying, don't read Mark, it's trash, read what I'm writing. He's not setting out to write the authoritative, one true version of Jesus' life and his teachings. He's writing the story that he's collected based on his reports from the beginning and in a particular order. And I think Luke appreciates that there are other versions of Jesus' story out there, but would like to add his own voice to the company, which again is exactly how we want to embrace this book. We want to learn what Luke has to say about Jesus, this very particular version of the story, without discounting the fact that others exist. And we want to do this in our own lives, in our own communities. None of us have experienced God or relate to the story of Jesus the same way. None of us even have experienced or related to that story the same way over the course of our own lives. We've all changed. So hopefully this book allows us to enter into one person's perspective, one person's view of Jesus and the kingdom of God, while maintaining perhaps our own distinct reception of that story as well, appreciating that it may exist differently in someone else. This book should teach us how to preserve diversity of thought even while listening to one version of the story. There are three others, three other gospels, 
And so, what is actually different about Luke? We should probably keep going. First of all, the big difference in Luke is the beginning. Uh, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, the one that we think was earlier than Luke, the only story, uh, this begins uh, by telling uh, Jesus as an adult. So Mark starts the story with Jesus as an adult in his ministry teaching. So Luke uniquely adds a full beginning, starting with Jesus' birth story and kind of like a Wonder Years episode of Jesus. Molly's going to talk about that next week. So really what Luke is in the ancient world is like a director's cut version of the gospel. It's longer with additional scenes. Think about the extended cuts of Lord of the Rings movies, which are awesome, um, or, or Zack Snyder's version of the Justice League. And I'm going to be honest, that's a four-hour movie, and I have not seen that, and I probably never will. Um, but these exist out there in the world, and some people enjoy them. This first week is, then, a director's cut extended version. It's, we're starting with Luke's version of the story that has a full beginning. It has these birth stories. And just as a disclaimer, even though Luke goes on for two chapters about these early years, uh, we are not going to be able to spend a lot of time here for a few reasons. First, is that even though Sam's Club has some Christmas stuff out right now, uh, thanks Jeff for sending that picture, Christmas in September is just weird. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I say that as a person whose mom started Sinatra Christmas albums in August sometimes. Uh, so I love the stuff, I just have my limits. Um, but the other reason that we may revisit these stories is uh, that we, we might come back to them in Advent, the first four weeks leading up to Christmas. But again, no promises. Uh, this is the closest I could get to doing a Tarantino version of Luke. So uh, we'll see if we go back in time and do a flashback later. Um, but this is how Luke begins this section about Jesus' birth. It says, In the days of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all of the commandments and regulations of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. It's a nice way of saying it. They were old. So, so this is where we have to go back to the whole one story from beginning to end bit. Because Luke assumes that his readers know a lot. Like, you may be sitting there asking, what does a priest do in Israel? What's the order of Abijah? Did I miss some kind of new Star Wars miniseries? Who is Aaron? What does it mean to be blameless according to the commandments? And, and what is this about elderly folks without kids? In fact, Luke is assuming that you pretty much know all of these stories from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. He assumes that you know about these people named Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Moses, Aaron, Hannah, Samuel, David, Abijah. We could add more names to this list. And so really quickly, I'm going to try to abbreviate like 60% of the Bible in about a paragraph. Abraham and Sarah were the patriarch and matriarch supreme of Israel. They were a couple who did not have children, 
And they had been given a promise that through their family, God was going to bless the world. Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, is actually the person that is renamed to Israel. And both of these families, Abraham's family and Jacob's family, experienced barrenness, that means they were not able to have children for a time, and yet it was through their children that God was going to create a nation. Eventually, that nation ends up in slavery in Egypt, and Moses and his brother Aaron, who come from the family of Abraham, lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Aaron becomes Israel's first high priest, and Moses gives Israel the laws of the Torah, the laws of the Old Testament. Fast forward maybe, I don't know, four or five hundred years, and Hannah is a woman living in the time of the judges, these, uh, this sort of vigilante period of Israelite history, and she is another formerly barren woman who ends up having a promised child who becomes a prophet and priest named Samuel who anoints kings in the Hebrew Bible. One of those kings that Samuel anoints is David, the greatest king according to the Hebrew Bible. And David's high priest, the one that he chose once he established the capital in Jerusalem and planned his regime, was a guy named Abijah, whose Zechariah's wife is descended from, or Zechariah is descended from. And so it turns out that knowing all of this whole story is very important. And if you don't know that story, it's okay, because that's what that whole rundown was just about. But, but just pay attention to the fact that by giving us that information in just three verses, Luke is keying in on all of these elements of Israel's past. In these few short verses, Luke is telling us that this guy, Zechariah, is going to be important. As soon as we hear priest related to the guy who worked for David, who was childless, the ancient Israelite audience would have been just going nuts. They, they think they know exactly what's coming. This is how you start a story where God shows up and gives you your hero. So Luke tells us this guy, Zechariah the priest, is on duty in the temple one day, and he, he gets this once-in-a-lifetime chance to actually go into the temple and offer this offering of incense. And, and for once, for us, uh, what happens next is a surprise, but for the ancient Israelite audience, this is as simple as knowing that when someone walks into the woods, bad things happen. So this is what happens in the story of Luke. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I want to know where Zechariah gets his incense. Uh, but when Zechariah saw him, that was a joke. <laughs> when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So while Zechariah is in the temple performing this service, he gets this message from an angel that he's going to have a son in his old age, and this son is going to be someone that turns many of the people of Israel to the Lord. And this is literally, again, Luke is assuming that you know a bunch of the story, a direct quote from the last verse of the last prophet in the Hebrew Bible. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Elijah was one of the most famous prophets of the Hebrew Bible. He was also a kingmaker, and he was a person who was known for renewing God's relationship with Israel when the people had gone astray. See, the people of Israel had endured the loss of their king over the course of their history. They had lost their political autonomy. They had experienced exile and defeat, and they were waiting in this interim period for renewal. They were waiting for all of the different answers to come, for all the different questions they had about how that was going to happen. And Malachi says at the end of the Old Testament that one day Elijah, this prophet, will come and prepare them for that restoration. He will, he will prepare them to meet their God. And that was probably four to three hundred years before this angel showed up in the temple to Zechariah. So when we hear this, when we read this, if we're an ancient audience with Israel's story in mind, we are thinking when we hear this story, this is it. This is the guy. This, this kid that's going to be born to Zechariah is going to be the hero of our story. This is the one. This is the promised child until we hear the name John, not Jesus. This is Luke's first surprising reversal, his first upside-down move. The first birth story is not the one you thought it was going to be. There will be a second birth story. And Zechariah, even himself, doesn't believe what he's hearing, and he's made literally speechless by this angel until his son's birth. And that's where the second story intersects with our story, the first two chapters, it's the story that begins with the young woman named Mary. Luke says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God into a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man who was named Joseph, the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. Now, again, Luke is signaling important things here. We don't have time to go into all of them, but, but this time we're told about a young woman engaged to a man that comes from the family of Israel's greatest king, David. And the angel appears and tells her that God is with her, but maybe not like she thinks. The angel says to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
This is the fulfillment now in the story of all the people's political and religious expectations. And Luke starts this story by giving us the fake-out birth story of this guy named John, who we'll learn about later, to introduce us to the real birth hero story, this, this one who will be born to a young mom out of wedlock. And this is the guy that will have the never-ending, long-awaited kingdom. This is the one that will inherit, after hundreds of years, the empty throne of David. And Luke begins this story with, I think, just absolutely loving the dramatic irony of this. Pulling out all these familiar expected lines of people, waiting, knowing what the cues were going to be, and then just tweaking them, just, just surprising them with what comes next, upending the box that Israel thought the present was supposed to come in. And it's, it's to a postmenopausal expectant mother and a virgin young woman who are the first ones to be in on the joke. They're the ones Luke describes as understanding, at least in part, what is going on here. And when Mary is with her relative Elizabeth, she breaks into song over what's happening. She understands the upside-down nature of this kingdom of God that's coming, and we only have time to read a part of this magnificent song. He has shown strength with his arm, talking about God. For he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child, Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the moment of the one story where things are going to get flipped upside down for the good. This coming kingdom, the upside-down, surprising, subversive new reality, scatters the proud, brings down the powerful, but lifts the lowly, the meek, fills the hungry, sends the rich away hungry. This is how the kingdom will come. Completely unlike the Roman superpower of the day, but still fulfilling the promise God made to Israel. And so the stage is set for Jesus. Both of the births, both John and Jesus, happen. And there is rejoicing and expectation. But there are more surprises ahead. Because everyone in the story, including Luke and including us, all see Jesus differently. Every story in the Gospel of Luke is about a different kind of encounter, a different kind of perspective of Jesus. And that's the true of us as well. One scholar, uh, Albert Schweitzer, who tried to read from an academic perspective to find the historical real Jesus, concluded at the end that we all find the Jesus we're looking for. And to some extent, Luke is counting on that. And I don't know if we can even avoid it, to be honest. If you're politically progressive, you're going to see a liberating, iconoclastic Jesus. If you tend conservative, you may find Jesus being the ultimate fulfillment of the rules that you like to follow. If, if you want to find the divine Jesus, the perfect Jesus is there. If you need the humanity of Jesus, you'll find an enigmatic, mysterious Jesus. 
And we, we all see the same Jesus, at least the, the Jesus that Luke presents to us, but we all see that Jesus very differently. We find the Jesus we're looking for. The question I have for us, the question that I want to continue throughout this series is, can we still be surprised? Can we imagine being shocked by what we might find here for the next 23 weeks? A few weeks ago, I, I was reading this book, uh, They All Saw a Cat, uh, by Brendan Wenzel to my, my kids before bed. Anybody ever read this book, by the way? A couple of hands? It's an awesome book. Um, and it hit me as I was reading this book that what is going on in this children's book is the same thing that happens to us when we start talking about God or reading about Jesus. And I'd like to end this first week of talking through Luke by reading this very short book with you. So if you will, They All Saw a Cat by Brendan Wenzel. The cat walked through the world with its whiskers, ears, and paws. And the child saw a cat. And the dog saw a cat. And the fox saw a cat. Yes, they all saw the cat. The cat walked through the world with its whiskers, ears, and paws. And the fish saw a cat. <laughs> and the mouse saw a cat. And the bee saw a cat. Yes, they all saw the cat. The cat walked through the world with its whiskers, ears, and paws. And the bird saw a cat. And the flea saw a cat. And the snake saw a cat. And the skunk saw a cat. And the worm saw a cat. And the bat saw a cat. Yes, they all saw the cat. Yes, they all saw a cat. A child and a dog and a fox and a fish and a mouse and a bee and a bird and a flea and a snake and a skunk and a worm and a bat. The cat knew them all. And they all knew the cat. And the cat walked through the world with its whiskers, ears, and paws. Then it came to the water. And imagine what it saw. Over the next 23 weeks, we will all see a Jesus. There will likely be as many different views as there are people here, or bees, or dogs, or mice. Are we all seeing the same Jesus? I think so, at least according to Luke. But I think and I hope that despite that... <laughs> despite the fact that we will all see different Jesuses, that Jesus knows us all, and we all get to know this Jesus. That we can be surprised 
regardless of our different views, by the reflection of Jesus that we find in Luke. And perhaps, perhaps, we will look into the waters of Luke and imagine what we'll see. Would you pray with me? God, as we come together as a community for this time to study the story of Jesus, the story of your son, may we not become so attached to a Jesus that we are familiar with or that we've seen or think we've seen that we miss the Jesus in each other, that we miss the Jesus that may surprise us. Give us the humility and the grace and the awareness to keep our eyes open and to find out of the corner of our eyes how you might be moving even when we think you are not there. In your name we pray. Amen.